All right, for those who don't know me here, I am uh, Pastor Stefan Dirksen. I'm pastor of the Four Winds Ministry here at Southland Church. And <laughs> the support, that's two services in a row. That feels good. I just want to tell you, it feels good. So whenever I come up here, feel free to cheer. That's, that's good. <laughs> just shows my Instagram. <laughs> okay. Oh. I had that coming. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Now, I don't even know what we're going to talk about anymore. I just want to tell you that I feel really good. <laughs> I hope you feel really good too. <laughs> no, but uh, uh, over the next two weeks, I get to speak to you. Pastor Ray and Pastor Chris are both gone, and then uh, Pastor Chris is coming back after. I'm not sure if he's the one speaking though right after me, but I get you two weeks in a row, which I'm excited about, and I'm going to do a little, I mean, a mini-series if you want to call it. It's two-part, and it's kind of expanding a bit on some of the stuff I taught the last time I was here. I talked about the Joy Center, and probably the next times you hear me speak, you're going to hear me kind of speaking in the same vein. I'm just going to be focusing on different aspects and pieces. Uh, so today and next week, we're going to be focusing on the aspect of emotional maturity. Now, as soon as I say emotional anything, I know a lot of the guys just want to go, oh, yawn, why did I cheer for you going up there, right? We want to hear about like, unless it's like the emotions of like, you know, rage or I don't know, something big, right? Like we're going to go conquer the earth with our emotions or I don't know, something big. Anyhow, guys don't like the, the thought of just thinking about our emotions, uh, but I, want to, I don't want you tuning out and I'm going to tell you why in just a second. But, but first, uh, this week what I want to do in the area of emotional maturity is I kind of want to lay a foundation that I'm going to build upon next week. And what I want to start with today is looking at what are the different emotions that we're actually hardwired to feel and how are we supposed to handle those things and, and what, is, what does it actually look like? What are they telling us? And then at the end of the message, um, and by the way, you're getting a, a sheet handed out. I will just stop right there. Don't look at the sheet. <clears throat> Place it under your chair or under your Bible or something like that. I will explain it later. If you're looking at it now, you won't quite make sense of it other than that you're thinking, hey, this is kind of like inner healing. It is inner healing. We're going to be doing it at the end of the service, but don't, don't get weirded out. It's going to be fun. It works good. Okay, we already did it in the 9 o'clock. No one fainted or passed out or anything like that. They all made it out alive. Uh, but anyways, uh, so just put that away. We'll use it at the end of the service. But that's what I'm going to do. I'm, we're going to introduce the different emotions today, and then we're going to look at what do we do when we get stuck. And then next week, based upon that, we're going to look at how do we continue to grow in steps of maturity. Because maturity is more than just, you know, getting inner healing and more than just being set free. Maturity isn't something that I give you as a gift, right? Like if I give you a gift, if I give you, you know, an Xbox, you now own that Xbox. Maturity doesn't get given that way. That's part of the thing that's on our plate. We talk about God's responsibilities, our responsibilities. He does sanctification, salvation, redemption, restoration. Those are his responsibilities. But we have responsibility too in our walk. And part of that responsibility is character growth and growing in maturity. So that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. But like I said, don't, don't zone out, guys, because this topic actually affects all of us. Right? And a lot of times, guys just kind of, we think that strength is seen through how stable we can try to be and, and unemotional, right? I mean, if you're, really, if you're going through ups and downs emotionally, that must mean that you're a weak individual. And guys don't want to portray weakness, so we hide that, right? We want to be strong. But I'll show you a little bit later in Scripture already, but Jesus was emotional, wasn't he? So I don't think we can get any stronger than Jesus, right? And Jesus modeled for us. He was up and down. I mean, some of the things he did, he was up and down, but he stayed true to himself and he never sinned. And that's the key here, and that's what we're going to be kind of unpacking the next two weeks, and this week and next week is, how do we do that? How do we feel all those emotions and then stay true to ourselves and true to our faith? Okay, so like I said, this topic of emotional maturity, it actually affects all of us. Um, I'll just give you a couple of examples of where it will shine, you know, even in smaller areas. These are big, 
but this, this is just the, the beginning stages. Uh, you can have people that are married. Okay, you said your vows together because you love each other, right? So you love each other, and you want to be on the same team, and you want to be on the same page. You want to do, do things together, make decisions together. So you come up with this idea that you're going to sit down one evening. You know, it's a Wednesday evening. After the kids are in bed, you're going to go over your finances. Seems like a good plan, right? There's a lot of, a lot of bad fights that come out of finances, aren't there? Yeah, there are. Okay, you can just keep on your head on that one. It's true. Okay, so you sit down, and this is the, the bizarre thing is you have two people, you know, person A and person B, man and wife, and... Uh, they love each other, they, and they actually both want the same thing for their finances. They both want to be debt-free, they both want to save up a little bit if they can, and maybe go on a vacation every year with their kids, do something camping or go to a cottage or something, right? So that's their goals, their main goals are right there together. So you have love together, and you have four main goals, and yet somewhere in between being on the same page, you sit down, and within minutes, you get this feeling called anxiety and stress and it starts building, and it starts building, and suddenly you're frustrated, and you're trying to shove it down, and you don't know how to deal with it, and then suddenly you're fighting. And of course, it's the other person's fault, because they don't think the same way you think, right? And that's just how it works. And you end up later on thinking, what happened here? We were on the same page. We want the same things. How do we end up fighting? Okay, that's an example of emotional maturity, immaturity, sorry, right? When we don't know how to handle those difficult emotions like anxiety and stress and frustration, when we don't know how to deal with ourselves emotionally, we fall apart at the seams as soon as difficult, you know, situations arise, okay? You know, this could be a, a personal struggle that you're having. I've met with countless people like this that I've done personal ministry with, but, you know, they fall into sin, which all of us do, but then they go and confess their sins, but they don't feel forgiven, so they walk around never feeling God's love, never feeling His forgiveness. And you might say, that's terrible. It is terrible. And if you're here experiencing that, it's awful. I can't imagine how terrible that would be to not feel the forgiveness of our Lord. Right? To walk around in that condemnation is a very heavy load to bear. And part of that you might say, well, yeah, but that's a bondage they need to be set free from. Yes, you're right. But it's a bondage that's come out of an emotional immaturity. They never learned how to handle their shame, what to do, what's an appropriate way response to shame. Okay? So this is a learning thing. Remember, maturity isn't something we're given, it's something we grow in. Okay, and lastly, I'll give you one more example, and some of you might relate here. There might be some moms that relate, because I know I've heard this story a uh, hundred times here. But, uh, you know, you have your kids, you're getting them ready for school. You know, your husband's maybe gone to work already, and you're getting your kids ready for school, and, you know, they've, you know, grades five and six and three and two, let's say, whatever, whatever it might be, and you think already in your mind, as you're getting them ready, you're halfway through the school year, they've been in school for how many years, at this point, they must know the routine, right? Like, it's not that hard to figure out. Like, you brush your teeth, you have a shower, you get dressed, you eat your food, you do your devotions, and then once all that stuff is done and your bag's packed, then you can sit down and relax if there's time left, right? Isn't that what we think, parents? That's what we think. And they should know that, but they don't know that. They don't know that. They don't know without constant reminding. They don't even know that they're supposed to get up in the morning without constant reminding. It can be the same thing every day for six, seven, eight, nine, ten years in a row, and they still don't figure it out. And what happens as a parent then, once again, if you don't know how to deal with these kinds of difficult situations, you start feeling anxiety. You start feeling frustrated. You start feeling angry, right? And it keeps building, and it keeps building, and it keeps building. But inside, you know that, well, I mean, how do I, I don't even know how to deal with this. Like, I, I, I don't want to freak out on them. But at the same time, it's bothering me, so you don't do anything about it. You just keep bottling up, bottling up, bottling up until finally one day you blow up and yell at your kids. Now you've done something about it, but you've done the wrong thing about it. Right? Now you've hurt them. Now not only are they not learning to do the right thing, they're actually learning to be afraid of mom or dad. Right? Okay, so 
that's all coming out of emotional immaturity because we don't know how to handle difficult emotions. And that's what we're going to be laying the foundation for today is how do we handle difficult emotions? And to start on that, we're going to actually just look at, you know, what they're there for. But I want to show you in Scripture where it talks about maturity. Ephesians 4, where it talks about the fivefold ministry, talks about maturity. It says the fivefold ministry's job is to, you know, empower the church and teach the church how to do the actual ministry. Okay, and Pastor Ray's taught it there a number of times. But it actually gives three steps, specific steps that the fivefold is supposed to teach them in. One is unity of faith. Uh, two is knowledge of God. And the third one is to mature adulthood or manhood. Right? And then it goes on to say, so that they won't be like children tossed to and fro by the waves. So maturity, and the word used there for mature manhood is teleos. It's a Greek word that means mature, lacking in nothing, or perfect. That's what it means. So we're supposed to grow into that so that we aren't tossed back and forth. James also talks about this. He says, um, Count it a joy, my brothers, when, trials, when you meet trials of various kinds, when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, and when your endurance is fully developed, or uh, you will be strong and ready for anything. Other, like, that word there, though, is teleos. You will be perfect, depending on your translation. It will say perfect or mature or lacking in nothing. It all means the same thing. It's the same word, teleos. So we go through these hardships and it's an opportunity for joy because when we go through it, we grow into teleos, we grow into maturity. That's what it's teaching us. And lastly, this one we'll look at together, Matthew 5, 43 to 44 and 48. It uh, says there, you therefore must be perfect. Teleos is your Father in heaven is perfect. And that's that end verse right there. And I, what I love about this one is we often actually, you know, glaze over this one. And for good reason, because we actually look at it and say, who can be perfect? Nobody. So if we can't be perfect, why are we going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what that verse is actually saying? Because no one can actually be that until we see Jesus face to face, right? Until he actually perfects us and, and removes our sin nature, we won't be perfect. So we don't even look at it, but we actually have to open up our eyes and see it for what it is and look at the context in which he's speaking. He just finished saying that he's calling Christians to love their enemies, to pray for those who persecute them. Okay, then he goes on to say, it's not good enough. If you're, a follower, if you're my follower and you're called by my name, it's not good enough if you're only loving those who love you, if you're only kind to those who are kind to you. He said, I'm calling you to love the unlovable, to love your enemies. And for that, he then says, you therefore must be teleos, mature, perfect, lacking in nothing, just as your Father in heaven is teleos, lacking in nothing, okay? So it's saying we're supposed to become mature. When we're mature, we can then answer the call that God has in our lives better. Well, before I go any further, why don't we just bow our heads and pray. I'm going to pray for you guys, and then we'll start, or we'll continue on this message. Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you for everybody here, and I thank you that you are teleos. You are mature, perfect, and lacking in nothing. That gives us lots of confidence when we come to you, because we can come to you with anything, and you actually have all of the answers, everything we need, and we can have confidence when we come to you. Thank you for that. Thank you for your unchanging nature, and today I ask that you would open up the scriptures, but also that you would open up just an understanding of what our emotions are actually there for, that you would teach us so that we can take next steps in growing in maturity. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I did say emotional maturity, and I will add to that, I mean, when we talk about maturity in general, there's more aspects to maturity than just the emotional side, okay? There, there is physical you know, we grow physically and we mature physically, but we don't need to spend a lot of time on that because it's fairly simple to grab a whole, you know, to grasp that concept. You eat and sleep and you kind of live life and you just continue to grow. And then at some point you stop growing up and you start growing out, right? And it just works that way. That's just how we grow, right? You just continue growing that way and that's just how it is. Emotionally though, it's not so automatic, is it? Right? It takes work. It takes effort. And if we're not emotionally mature, like I said, we can't actually live up to the call that Jesus has in our lives. So, 
to begin this talk on emotional maturity, we're going to start by looking at, you know, uh, six main difficult emotions that our brains are hardwired to feel. And you might say, why difficult? Why, not, why don't we focus on positive ones? Well, for good reason, because the positive ones we actually already know. We talk about the fruits of the Spirit. All Christians already know they need to be more loving and more joyful, and, you know, we need to be propagators of peace and kind and patient. We know all those things. What we don't, or what we rarely focus on, though, is the difficult emotions like fear and sadness and anger and hopelessness. How do we deal with those things? I mean, we just typically look at any difficult emotion as though it's bad in and of itself, so we don't learn how to deal with them. We just try to learn how to avoid them altogether. Okay? So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at why, does God actually, why did God put difficult emotions in our brain? Think about it. Right? He hardwired you to feel certain things that are painful. Why would a loving God do that? Well, think of it like this. If I would, uh, there was a fire here and I went and picked up a, a hot coal, I would, I would get a signal to my brain from nerves that would be excruciatingly painful. And basically what it would be translated as is, stop, you idiot, drop the hot coal. Right? And, it'd be a very, and, and the thing is, the hotter it was, the louder it would scream. That's how it works. You have, you have nerves that way, and they're good. We're glad we have nerves that way. Imagine how much damage we would get into if we picked something hot up and it was like this back and forth conversation and it was polite. And by the way, you know, that's hot. You should think about letting go because it could hurt you. Right? And then you're like, well, I don't know. Should I really? Like, how bad is the pain going to be? Like, how bad would it hurt later on? Is it going to affect my mobility? No, you don't, want, you don't want that. We're motivated by pain. You get a hard pain signal. You let go immediately. Okay? So that's how God created our bodies. He created our minds, our brains to actually function the same way. So we have difficult emotions, but those difficult emotions actually have purpose. He didn't just randomly put in sadness, randomly put in hopelessness, and then say, oh, let's see how they deal with this one. No. They're specific. They're emotional nerves that are telling you a specific message at a specific time. Okay, that's what we're going to look at uh, today. Okay, so let's look at the six difficult emotions. The first one that we're going to look at is fear. Okay, so fear is an emotion that all of us feel. It can be both destructive and it can be healthy. It's, it's good and bad, okay, for a variety of different reasons. But its main purpose, fear's main purpose, the reason why you're hardwired to feel it is so that you can sense danger. It's telling you of danger. That's actually what it's there for, right? It tells you of danger, right? Now, some of it's perceived danger. Some of it is legitimate and real danger. And that we'll talk about later, but you kind of have to learn how to discern what is real and what's not. But it's good. If I see, you know, you see a cute little baby bear in the woods. You're going for a walk one day and you see this cute little baby bear and you're like, baby bears are cute. Baby animals are cute. So you're like, I'm going to go pet that little baby bear. And then you see the rustling and then there's a mommy bear right there. What do you feel? You feel fear. Is that fear a bad thing in that case? No, it's good. It's saving you. It's saying, don't go over there. That's dangerous. You're going to get mauled. It's protecting you, right? So it's a, it's, a, it's a bad feeling, but that bad feeling keeps you from doing something that you'll later regret if you're using it properly, okay? You know, on a more serious note, what if you're out in public or you're at home and you're, you encounter someone who's acting abusively? They're being abusive and they're dangerous. They're hurting people. They're hurting you. They're hurting those around you. What do you feel? You feel fear. That fear is telling you something. It's telling you that there's danger that you need to take appropriate action to that danger. You need to do something about it, right? Now, those actions are different depending on the circumstance, but that fear is actually a good thing. It's there for a purpose. God created you with, with fear so that you would feel that, so that you would know when there's danger nearby, okay? So it's a good thing. When fear becomes bad is when that fear causes us to disobey God, right? If we're, if we're, if we're following fear and not God, that's bad. If we're controlled by fear, you know, in such a way where there's people that we normally love, it could be our kids or our spouse, but we're so ruled by fear that we don't actually give them love, we actually, 
we actually give them fear. We make fear-based decisions and we don't actually love them. That's bad. That's destructive. Right? When we live our lives out of fear, it becomes destructive, but fear itself isn't bad. Let's look at Scripture, what Scripture has to say about an example of fear here. Matthew 25, 25 to 27 and 30. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours, but his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with, with interest. And then it goes on to say, And cast that worthless servant into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this is a very sobering passage for anyone here that struggles in fear. And you might say, well, this doesn't bring me a lot of hope. This makes me feel condemned. I've, I'm scared by looking at this. Well, why don't we take a look at what Jesus was actually saying? Was he, was he condemning the servant because of his fear? The answer is no. He's not condemning him because of fear. He condemned him for disobedience. That's what the scripture says here, right? He says he was afraid, but he goes on to say, right, it was, like, if you were afraid of me, fine, I get it. So you never matured in fear and you never learned that I'm actually loving. You never learned that I was a good master, then you should have at least done something with what you were given. So I love it. You actually see a bit of the Lord's mercy. He doesn't rebuke him for the fear. He rebukes him for the fact that he sinned in his fear, for his disobedience, right? And that's an important thing that we can learn here. And what I also like is, is just God's mercy and his grace. The fact that, you know, he understood he was afraid, didn't rebuke him for the fear, but then he didn't also say that he had to have just as good a result as the other two servants who had passed the test with flying colors. He said, had you even done something, I understand you're afraid, but had you even given me a little peace, a little yes, a little movement forward, that would have been enough. That's what the master was saying, but that's not what he got from the servant. So as you can see, you know, at, at its worst, if we, if we stay immature here, if we stay in bondage to fear, fear can have dire consequences. So it's important that we actually learn how to deal with fear, right? But like I said, fear in itself isn't bad. Even being stuck in fear, Jesus didn't rebuke the, that, that, that servant, Right? It's, it's when we, in that fear, we refuse to obey Jesus. So we'll look at the second one, and that's anger. So I'll just start off by saying anger is not bad. Now, you might be in here, and you may have experienced someone who is abusive with their anger. And you have learned, you know, through life experience, that anger is bad. Right? And you might feel that every time someone is angry around you. You might have come from an abusive childhood, and I've seen this many times, where their parents were abusive, and now in marriage, if their spouse ever gets frustrated or annoyed or upset even a little bit at a low level, they respond and they completely shut down because it brings them back to that anger that they knew as a child from their parents. Okay? But anger isn't bad. People use anger in sinful ways. Anger in itself is not actually bad. It's okay to be angry. It's not okay to sin in your anger. And I'll explain that in just a moment. So anger is actually good. What it's telling you is when you've experienced an injustice. So when I feel angry, anger is just saying injustice. So if I read the newspaper, or if we would all read the newspaper this morning, and then we read in there, you know, a group of men picked up a young girl and they sexually assaulted her, we would feel that is awful, right? You would feel disgusted on the inside, and then you would feel anger rising up, especially, you know, they say they haven't caught the guys yet. You'd just be like, oh, I hope they get those guys, right? You just feel that, that anger rise up. Why? Because it's unjust. That's part of God's character. God gets angry at injustice, and he's given that piece of himself to us, right? Now, we don't always handle it in a righteous manner, but like I said, it has a purpose for being there. It's telling us a message. And you know, where it can get even harder to deal with is, let's say, you know, your child comes home and they're in grade four and they tell you that they've been getting bullied at school. What do you feel? Moms and dads alike, you feel angry, right? You feel angry. That's not right. You have terrible thoughts that go into your head over whoever's hurting your child. 
You want to protect them at all costs. Now, can we respond to that in a negative way? Certainly we can. Are there right and wrong ways to handle your anger? Absolutely. There are definitely right and wrong ways to handle it. But the anger itself isn't the problem. It's the immaturity. It's the person wielding the anger that's feeling it, right? Some of us stay in a childlike immaturity for the rest of our lives. We never actually learn how to grow up in those areas, okay? Let's look at what Scripture says. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There's three things I want to point out to you from here. Number one, I want to tell you that this verse, I would see it as a transferable principle for all six of the difficult emotions that we're going to go through, okay? Meaning, you know, be angry. It's the difficult emotion. Be whatever one of those emotions it is. You can be that and it's not sin yet, right? You can feel sad. You can be hopeless. You can feel shame. You can feel anger. You can feel fear, these things, and that in and of itself isn't sin, But then it goes on to give two steps to actual maturity. Number one is, in your emotional overwhelm, do not sin. Do not give in to sinful actions even when you're overwhelmed, right? That's what it's saying. And number two, it says, do not stay angry or do not stay overwhelmed, right? And those are two principles that we can learn from as we become emotionally mature. Those are two things that we can all grow in, right? We don't sin when we get upset. We don't sin in our fear. And I'll explain more what that looks like as we go through the other ones. Plus, we don't stay there either. We're able to return back to joy and return to relationship. So where anger becomes a problem is when we respond, you know, if we become abusive, if we're, you know, verbally, emotionally, uh, physically, any one of those things, you know, if we begin wrecking things, if we begin acting outside of our normal character, anger is a problem, right? Anger is sinful at that point. Or if we stay angry, you know, some people, they think they deal with their anger, but their way of dealing with it is just suppress. So you just push it down, right? I feel angry at my spouse and I just push it down, push it down, push it down. I don't talk to them about it. I don't ever tell them anything until they keep making me angry, keep making me angry. I keep pushing it down and I can't do that anymore and then I blow up. And now at that point, I don't even communicate properly why I'm angry. Now I'm just like spewing venom, right? And that often comes from people who aren't actually getting over it. They're staying angry. They may not feel like they're always in an angry state, but they are. If you haven't actually dealt with it, if you've just bottled it up, you're staying in that state. Right? That's how you were created. You're staying there. Okay? So we don't want to stay in an angry state. Now, I will caveat. I said anger is telling us of injustice, and it is, but not all injustices are real, are they? I mean, and this is something that as you grow in maturity, you're going to learn this, but uh, not all injustices are real. Some of them are perceived. If I come home and my, I, my expectations of my wife is, you know, she meets me with a hug and kiss, has supper ready, and then gets ready, you know, as soon as she's done serving me supper, you know, rubs my feet and lets me sit on the couch while she takes care of the kids. If that's my expectation and she doesn't live up to that and I'm angry, now, I may be feeling anger, which means I'm perceiving injustice, but is that a real injustice? Is that valid? Absolutely not. Okay, so when we feel anger, when we feel sadness, we actually have to learn to evaluate why it is that we're feeling that. What is the injustice that I'm feeling? Right? What is the injustice and is it real? Am I placing unrealistic expectations on others and then feeling like it's unjust when they don't live up to my expectations? then that's something that I need to bring to Jesus and deal with it there, okay? So the third one is sadness. When we've we've suffered loss, so when we feel like we've lost something, when we suffer loss, uh, we feel sadness. Now, you can feel sadness. If I would lose my watch, I would feel sad at a very low level. I would feel sadness, right? I'd be sad that I lost it, but I know I can replace it, so I'll just go and replace it. But the more attached you are to an item, the more sadness you might feel. But even there, when we're dealing with objects, we're talking about sadness way down here. Where we feel sadness way up here is when we suffer the loss of relationship. So that's, that's probably the main reason that human beings feel sadness. And there's two things I want to show you about how we feel that. I mean, one, you might, you might have just been through, one of your loved ones passed away. They, you know, they went through a long battle with cancer. They passed away. It's tragic. Or there was an accident. 
and you feel the emotional break and how you feel on the inside is sad because you're, the, the relationship is gone. And it is sad. You mourn. You weep. You feel broken. You feel lonely. It's an awful feeling. It's an awful feeling for anyone who's gone through that. Okay, so you feel sadness there. But, so that's a physical relationship that's actually been broken and it's now gone that you can't restore. But we can also feel sad when there's emotional breaks of relationship. And this I often talk to, it's more common with women, but it's just, I mean, I'm sure lots of guys feel it too. We just try to hide it more, right? But when you feel an emotional break in your marriage, you feel sad. I talk to women all the time that actually deal with this exact thing. And I don't know why it is, but I just feel sad in my marriage. I'm just sad. Well, why do you feel sad? I don't know why I feel sad. And you pray with them and you kind of work through it a little bit and you find out that they're feeling sad because their husband's not emotionally available. Because he's not emotionally available to them, they don't feel that emotional connection. The relationship isn't together. So they feel, they're sensing, they don't have the words for it, they don't have the logical explanation, but they're sensing a break in the relationship which is then resulting in sadness. Okay? So that's what sadness is there. It's just telling us of loss. It's saying that the relationship is broken is its primary reason for being there. Where it becomes bad, though, or harmful is if we stay in sadness for a lengthy period of time. It can, actually be, uh, it can actually be detrimental to your physical health, actually. It can make you sick, staying in sadness for a long time. It can hurt your immune system. It can do all sorts of things like that. Uh, but it can also hurt you relationally. We don't want to stay in sadness. Staying in sadness is when it becomes a problem. We want to be able to reconnect to the people around us that care for us, right? And be able to reconnect to God. Uh, the other thing that could be also, I mean, it could be sinful. S- sadness in itself isn't sinful. But if we are staying in sadness and we're withdrawing from people and our kids or our spouse is trying to connect to us and we respond in a sinful way, that could be sinful, right? So in our sadness, we don't want to sin against others. But sadness in itself isn't a sin. And I love this passage here in John. Jesus is meeting up with Mary and Martha after Lazarus just died. And I just love how he responds to sadness. Because you remember that, remember that video they had on the announcement? I forget when it was. It was a few months back, but it was the nail in the head video. Remember the nail in the head video? Yeah, wasn't it funny? It was good, right? Right? And then you get the woman with the nail in the head and, you know, she keeps snagging her sweaters and she's wondering why she has all these headaches and can't figure it out. And he's just trying to say, okay, seriously, it's, it's the nail that's right here. Like, it's, if you just pull this out, this would all go away. And she won't listen to him, right? Because it's not about the nail. It's not about the nail. She's feeling, it's something else. It's something deeper, right? Well, I mean, most guys, that's how we respond to that sort of thing, right? Our wives are sad or we're dealing with that or our kids are sad. They're emotionally overwhelmed. We just want to fix the problem right away, right? It's the nail. It's the nail. Don't worry about the sadness. Just stop being sad. Have you ever said that to your wife, by the way? I did once. <laughs> so you don't do it again, right? But anyhow, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you learn. You know, I'm, I'm maturing emotionally slowly. So anyways, but so you get this sadness, right? And you're looking at it, you're like, if I can just fix this problem, then you don't have to feel that way, right? I'll just fix it for you, and then you just feel that way. But you know what? I just love how Jesus responds to sadness and to emotional overwhelm. We, we get, so Mary and Martha are there, and they meet with him, and they're weeping, and they're crying because Lazarus is dead. And we get this, you know, one of the shortest verses in the Bible, we get Jesus, Jesus weeping. You notice how Jesus actually came there? Think about this. He knew he was going to fix the problem, didn't he? See, most guys, we, knew, we, we know how to fix the problem. We're just going to come in there and fix the problem, and you can stop being so emotional. That's not how Jesus does this. And remember, he is fully mature. He is our model. We should be trying to be more like him in this kind of aspect, right? To be more emotionally mature. And look what he does. He doesn't rebuke them for their sadness. He doesn't tell them, oh, don't worry about that. I'll just go and fix it. He gets onto their level, and he weeps with them. He feels their sadness and pain with them, right? He connects emotionally to them. And I just love the way Jesus deals with emotions and deals with people. Often we feel so broken and alone and we just feel like he's just trying to correct us all the time. 
But he's actually, yeah, does he correct us? Certainly he does. But he doesn't do it from up here yelling at us like that. He gets on our level. He feels with us. Do you know that God understands loss just as much as anyone here, if not more? Think about how many people he's losing on a regular basis that are choosing to walk in a path that are contrary to him. He understands the sadness from loss. He gets it, okay? So anyhow, I just wanted to give a little, little short side note for the guys here. If we're going to be emotionally mature, we actually have to feel with our spouses and kids and friends and the world around us, right? Feeling is manly. All right, let's go to number four, disgust. So what is disgust there for? It tells us of defilement. What do I mean by defilement? I just mean it tells us when we've encountered something that's impure or dirty, right? Something that will defile us. This could be physically, emotionally, spiritually. You know, in the physical sense, if I, would, uh, if I see a poopy diaper, I feel disgusted, right? Like, ugh, that's gross. Or if I see puke or vomit like that, you don't want to touch it, right? Or what if you, you, know, you see an animal that's dead on the side of the road and the guts are spilled and it's starting to rot? And you're kind of looking at it, you're like, ugh. You just feel like that is gross on the inside. Okay? Now, that's actually a good thing that you feel that way because normally the things that we're disgusted by could actually be detrimental to our health. Right? It could actually cause a sickness and all that kind of stuff, right? But it's just telling us that it would defile us. You don't want to touch poop because it'll make you dirty. Right? That's why you feel disgusted. That's what it's there for. On an emotional or spiritual level, you might be disgusted though at people's behavior, right? Yeah, certainly. Suppose you're at work and someone cracks what he thinks is a really funny joke and it's a racist, a racist slur. You know, a racial slur like that. What if, what if you encounter something like that? How do you feel on the inside? You feel sick, right? You feel like, if I even acknowledge that you said that, I feel like I'm going to somehow defile myself. You feel so gross that they would even, you know, you don't want to laugh alongside, you don't want to encourage them, you don't want to smile at them for that, right? Because you just feel like to do so would just defile you. You feel disgusted on the inside. Okay, so we can be disgusted by people's behavior, lewd behavior, stuff like that, okay? Now, that's when it's good. So it's telling us something. So we should listen to it when we feel disgust. We should listen to it and learn, what it's, learn the message it's actually telling us. Where it can become bad is, number one, if you stay in disgust, just like that principle we talked about before. If you can't get over it, if you just feel constant disgust towards things, well, that's not good. If you're controlled by it, then you can't live your life. That's not good. It's also not good, though, if you respond sinfully to people because of your disgust. And you might think, well, how could you respond sinfully to someone because you're disgusted? Well, think of it like this. What if you have a little toddler that comes and they've discovered this brown, creamy substance in their diaper? You're like, duh, yuck. Yeah, look what I got. Like this waving in your face as you're sitting on the couch. And you're like, mm. like that's gross, right? You feel disgust at a very high level. Now, how could you sin in this matter? Well, I mean, obviously you could do something really nasty, but if you, don't, if you stay in your disgust in this moment, you're actually going to communicate to the child that they themselves are disgusting, not just the poop right? You have to remember that even when you've encountered something gross, if someone has done something that's just disgusting, you have to remember to still treat that person with dignity and honor and love, right? The action or the item might be disgusting, that might be wrong, but the person is still loved by God, right? And the same could be true. You could be sitting here today and smelling something offensive from the person next to you. It's possible. Don't raise your hands or look around. <laughs> okay, that's inappropriate. Remember, I'm talking about mature ways and immature ways of handling things. That would be immature. You're like, no, but if you're smelling something and it's disgusting, right? That's not, it's not bad that you feel disgust. If something offends you, if there's a smell that offends you, I mean, you have options there. You can leave, that sort of thing. Um, you can, but, but we want to be careful in however we respond, that we respond in a way that's dignifying and honoring to the person. In a way that, that re reflects to the person that you still see them as valuable, that they're not the ones that are disgusting. It may be a smell that offends you, 
but they themselves are still loved. Jesus calls us to love the unlovable, right? To love the unlovable, to love our enemies, right? So it's, it's always appropriate to respond in love. We don't want to show people that they, are, they themselves are disgusting, okay? So we'll look at number five here, and that is shame. So shame is a good emotion again. It's something we don't like feeling, but it's good because it tells us something. It tells us when we've done something wrong, right? When I've done something wrong that's caused a break in relationship, or if I perceive that something that I've done or am doing could cause a potential break in a relationship, the natural feeling is shame. That's how we feel. We feel shame, right? So this is good. Like, you know, if I'm doing, if I say something inappropriate to my wife or if I hurt her, even if it's a misunderstanding, misunderstanding or deliberate, in either case, afterwards, I feel shame, right? What is that shame telling me? It's telling me that I did something wrong, that I sinned against her, and because I did that wrong thing, it's now caused a rift or a break in the relationship. This is exactly what Scripture says happens with God, with our relationship with Him. It says, your sins have separated you from God, right? So when we're separated from God, what is the emotion we feel? We feel shame. That's what we feel, right? And then 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is, I mean, we use that verse at Encounter Lots, but that's exactly what people report at Encounter, right? Their sins were separating them from God. They felt that shame. As they begin confessing their sins, what happens? The guilt and shame are removed, relationship with God is restored, right? So the shame in and of itself isn't bad. The shame is telling us we've done something. It's telling you that you need to do something to right the wrong that you've committed, okay? So that kind of shame is actually good. We don't, now, we don't want to stay there, but before I get there, um, I talked about perceiving. We can perceive shame, right? If I perceive that something about how I'm presenting myself or an action I've made could result in someone breaking relationship with me, I said that can also cause shame, okay? And what I mean by that is, because that might sound confusing, Suppose, you know, you're, you're speaking in front of a classroom, you're in school, and you're, you're going to do a speech. So you've prepared this speech, and you get through the first line, and at that point, the words start to spin on the page because you're feeling anxious and fear, and you begin blubbering and saying dumb things, okay? And afterwards, you just feel what? Embarrassed. You feel shame, right? Now, why would you feel shame there? Did you actually do anything wrong? No, it's not sinfully wrong, but what you're feeling shame in, and you don't actually even know if people have rejected you yet but you're feeling shame because you feel that because of your wrong action and the way you've presented yourself, that there's a possibility that people will no longer want to relationally connect to you. Does that make sense? So you feel shame and embarrassment. That's really what that's all about. Now, that's a, it, can, it can be good when it corrects bad behavior, but it can be toxic and bad if we cannot get out of shame. Remember the example of the Christian who confesses their sins but never feels forgiven. That's bad shame, right? That's a sign of immaturity, maybe coming out of bondage, but that, there's immaturity there right? We don't want to stay there. Then shame becomes toxic. It can actually damage us, right? It's not good. And the other thing is with that perceived shame, we should never feel shame for things that are outside of our control, like our weight, our shape, ethnicity, pimples on your face, social status, wealth, and anything like these things. If you're sitting here today and you feel shame over those things, then let me tell you, Jesus wants to set you free from that. You don't need to be ashamed or embarrassed about those types of things. And I know the pushback is, yeah, but people have told me, and I've experienced rejection because of these things. If you've experienced rejection for these kinds of things, that, that dysfunction is on the other person and not on you. Okay, that's their problem. That's their issue to deal with, not yours. Okay, I just want to make that clear. So, then we'll go to number six here. Let's talk hopelessness. Now, I love this one. This is one of my favorites, okay? Now, you might look at it and say, hopelessness is your favorite? Yeah, it actually is one of my favorite emotions that God has programmed me to feel. And I'm genuine about that. I'm being totally serious. I'm not, I'm not being sarcastic in any way because it tells me when I've reached my personal limitations. This is not a bad thing. This is good. Now, 
Can it be destructive if you can't get out of hopelessness and you feel hopeless and despair all the time? Yeah, that can be very destructive. We'll talk about that at the end of this section. But hopelessness in and of itself is actually a good thing. God created you for, for He created you to feel hopelessness for a purpose and for a reason. He wanted you to know when you've reached your, your acknowledged limitations, your personal limitations. You know, think of it like a, a, your tachometer on your vehicle, right? You have a red line on there, and when you push your engine too far, you redline. So what's that red line there for? Well, the red line is there to tell you that you've reached your limitations, right? It says, you know, you know that once you hit the red line, you can't stay there for too long or you're going to risk damaging your vehicle. That's how it works. Hopelessness is like the red line for us personally, spiritually, emotionally, physically. That's what hopelessness is. It's our red line. When we hit hopelessness, when we feel hopelessness, what our brains are telling us is that we've reached our limitations. We can't go any further on our own. And this is a wonderful emotion, okay? It tells us that we need to actually reach out to those who are around us. And I think this is the primary emotion that actually leads people to Jesus. That's why I love this one. Hopelessness is great. I came to Jesus because I was hopeless. I want to show you the, the um, Jesus was talking about the different soils, and I'm going to tie it in with hopelessness here. Matthew 13, 20 to 23. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So he's coming to Jesus because of joy, because of good things, Okay. Yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, he immediately falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is, this is the person who's busy in life, has lots of things on their plate. This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Then it talks about, as, the one, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. I believe one of the biggest, you know, determining factors of whether we get that kind of soil in our lives and in our walk with Jesus is how we come to him, the manner of our approach. And I think if we come to him in hopelessness, we have the best, those are the people that typically end up having the best soil that God can use to advance his kingdom. And you ask, well, why is that? I mean, that seems bizarre. No, it doesn't. Just think it through a little bit. When, you're, when you come to God in hopelessness, you're coming to him saying, I have no strength in and of myself to be good, to be righteous, to do your will. To, to improve my marriage, to do any of these things. Jesus, I have no strength in me, no goodness in me to do this on my own. So it brings us to our knees and it causes us to cry out to Jesus and say, help me, Lord. Save me because I can't save myself. Right? Those kinds of people are the ones who genuinely or often end up giving Jesus everything right away. Right? They don't take little steps. They take big steps. They just want to give more and more and more and more. We just want to surrender everything to Jesus right? Those that come that are kind of adding Jesus in, you know, they don't feel hopeless. They feel like, well, I could, my life was pretty good beforehand. I'm just trying to add it on and, you know, make it better. It's like getting a new paint job on my vehicle, right? Those are the ones that trouble hits and they just fall away. They can't stay. Their roots aren't going deep. So hopelessness, I believe, is that emotion that drives us really deep. So hopelessness is good, but where it becomes destructive is when we don't actually listen to the message that it's giving us. So when we feel hopeless and we just plot on forward and we just, you know, in our pride or whatever, we just keep going forward and we don't stop and reassess or ask for help, then, then hopelessness is actually a problem, right? Or what if you stay in your hopelessness and you can't get over it and you just withdraw and withdraw and withdraw and you shut down relationally from all the people that you care about, you don't ask anyone for help, you don't turn to Jesus, you just go in, inside. I'm not, I'm not trying to heap shame on you if that's what you've done, but that's a problem, then it's not working right. You need to be set free there. You need to actually grow in maturity in that area. But hopelessness itself is good. I'll tell you, this week I was hopeless. Many times throughout this past week. You say, you were? When? When I was preparing this message. 
I've been studying lots in this kind of area, studying this life model works and, and this kind of stuff here that I've preached on last time and this year, and there's more, but I've been studying lots and there's lots of information going on up here, but I don't know how to put together the message that God wants for you. I don't know what he wants me to put in and what he wants me to take out. I don't know which examples he wants me to use. I don't know how to lead you guys to him, honestly. So what do I feel? I feel hopeless. And what do I do in that hopelessness? I get on my knees and I cry out and I say, Jesus, the hope of my salvation. You've got to show me what to do here. How do you want me to respond? How do you want this organized? How do you want this to look? Would you minister to those people? Right? I turn to Jesus. It's not a bad thing. Hopelessness is good when it's used appropriately. Right? I feel hopeless in my marriage. Sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds like I have a bad marriage. I don't. I have a good marriage. I have a good marriage because we both feel hopeless. And we know that we have limitations, that we're not strong enough to love each other on our own, that we need Jesus. We know that with our kids, we feel hopeless. I don't know how to raise godly kids. Some of the promises God's given us, and he just, he puts you in a spot where you have to feel hopeless. He tells you, this is what I want to use your kids for, and you're like, oh, I don't know how to raise that. Don't you see how sinful I am? I can't do that. And he's like, yeah, I know. I know. Just give me your hand. Let me lead you along the way. It's a good thing. You see how that works. I don't want to minimize if you're stuck here. Some people, you know, you get stuck in depression and those types of things. You feel hopeless all the time. I'm not saying that that is good. That's not. That's when it becomes destructive. I'm just saying inherently we're programmed to feel that for a good reason. It has a purpose for being there. You don't want to get rid of it entirely. You want to be set free or you want to learn how to manage it in an appropriate way. Okay? So we're going to look at now three indicators of maturity after I get some water. Now, with the three indicators of maturity, I'm going to just spend a little bit of time here, and then really we're going to move more not exactly on those three uh, indicators, but we'll talk more on the indicator, like maturity side and how we grow in that next week. But just so you can see here what it looks like to be mature in those six difficult emotions, I'll give you these three. And if you're only good in one of them, like if I start reading them off and you say, hey, I'm good at the first one, but not the second one or the third one. So you feel like, well, I'm good enough. At least one of three is pretty good, right? No. To be mature, you actually have to be able to do all three of these things simultaneously. You do them all, right? That's the sign of maturity. And the first one is you feel the full spectrum of human emotions. You're like, that's a sign of maturity? Yeah, actually it is. And the reason I say that is because many people think that to be strong emotionally means that you don't feel. I, I kind of alluded to that in the beginning of the message, right? So we would actually think, if I would think of, who do I know that's really strong emotionally? I'd probably pick someone who doesn't have a lot of ups and downs, Right? I wouldn't pick someone who I see get angry or if I see really sad or like, you know, they're like really happy one day and then the next day they're upset. Then you're like, well, that person's not stable emotionally. So if we think of someone who is strong emotionally, we typically think stable as in level, even keel, right? Isn't that what we think? That's not necessarily, I'm not saying that everyone who's like that isn't, mat- isn't mature, but that is not a good indicator of maturity. Once again, I'll just point to Jesus in the Gospels and look at his level life emotionally. Emotionally, that guy was up and down. He was big time up and down. Do you know what he did when he found people cheating people in the temple? He sat down and fashioned a whip of cords. He didn't just flip over the tables first. He first made a whip and then went in to flip over tables. Now, am I condoning that kind of behavior for the guys or girls here? No, I'm not. He's still Jesus and he was responding to to the temple being defiled right? So we're not him. We can't respond to everything in the same way he can. However, what I'm just pointing out is he was teleos. 
mature, emotionally mature. He was lacking in nothing and perfect. And we see him go up in anger. Then we see him come down in sadness. Then we see him go up in joy. And then he's level. He's all over the place like that. He felt the full spectrum of human emotions. And if we are to be mature, teleos, we too will have to be able to go through all of those emotions without sinning, right? Now, obviously, none of us will maintain that completely. We'll never go without sinning entirely, right? But that's what we're striving towards. That's what we want to become. Not to avoid the emotion, but to avoid the sin in the emotion. Okay, um, I had an example here, just, just a quick one. But I had a gentleman who told me that he had gotten rid of an anger problem all on his own. And I've had a number of people tell me that. But in this uh, specific case, he had said, you know, I haven't been angry in over a year. And this was the testimony to how he had gotten over his anger problem all by himself. He hadn't even felt, I'm like, so you haven't been angry at all? No, not even a little bit. Not even a hint. I'm like, well, that's not actually maturity. Like, that's not healthy. How can you go an entire year without, exper- without experiencing any injustice? You would have to not ever read the newspaper or look at the news, and you would have to stay away from all relationships in your life. Because we experience injustice on a regular basis. I'm not saying that you have to, you know, to be mature, you have to feel rage way up top here. No. But you feel it. It ebbs and flows. It moves like this. We're not like this. We flow. We're moving through the emotions like that, right? As we mature, that's normal. It's healthy. Okay? So that's the first one. Feel the full spectrum. Second one is maintain relational connectedness. And what I mean by that is if you maintain relational connectedness, that even when I'm angry or when I'm afraid, the people in my life that are normally important to me, they remain important to me. So suppose, you know, I come home one day from work and my kids were playing baseball in the house and they hit a ball into my TV and they broke it. I'll probably feel angry, right? Now you might say, well, you'll have to evaluate. That's not really that unjust. Well, whatever. I'll probably feel angry, okay? So now how do I follow this number two here in that situation? Now, if they were doing something that we had labeled was wrong, there might be an appropriate discipline, right? If it was a mistake or whatever, then there might not, depending on what kind of rules and that kind of stuff that you've set forth. But what's important here, if I'm maintaining relational connectedness, at all points, I realize that the person, my son or my daughter, is still more important than a TV. Does that make sense? That's relational connectedness, right? Even when I'm overwhelmed relationally, I realize that people are still more important than the problem. Going back to that, you know, husband and wife sitting there working through their finances, right? Had they maintained relational connectedness, they probably wouldn't have had that fight. See, because what they did is they lost sight of this piece right here. So as they lost sight of this, the problem became more important than the relationship, and thus that led to a fight. So we want to work on actually maintaining a state where we stay relationally connected to those who are around us, okay? Now, the third one. Let's look at the third one here. Remember, they all have to work together. The last one is your actions stay true to your values. So lastly, when you're emotionally mature, you're able to feel the full spectrum of emotions. You're able to go ebb and flow like that. Within that, you're able to maintain relational connectedness to those around you. Plus, you're actually able to stay true to yourself and to the convictions of your mouth and to your faith. Right? Meaning, if, I, you know, if I'm afraid, I don't start now treating someone with contempt you know, that I normally would love. Right? I don't push my kids away just because I'm afraid. I still act in love towards them. If I'm angry, I still... You know, I, I don't blow up and I don't end up abusing people, right? I mean, how can we on one hand, if we're, I mean, this is a sign of immaturity. On one hand, you say, I love you. On the other hand, you're speaking profanities to them, right? That's a problem. So that's the third thing here. We have to be able, you know, if we blow up or say things we don't mean when we feel emotional overwhelm, if we break things we usually value or hurt those we say we love in any of those six difficult emotions, it's a sign that we're actually not mature in those areas. Okay, but I'll go more on that next week. Uh, for now, what I want to do is you can pull out that sheet. Yeah, pull out that sheet and I'm going to explain. So for today, what I want to do is, so 
once we find areas that we need to grow in maturity on, the first step is actually bringing those things to Jesus and allowing him to speak truth into us to receive inner healing. That's actually the first step. Now, that's not the only step. Like I said, I mean, before, right? Like, suppose now we do this, this practicum together and maybe anger is your thing, okay? I know I've been picking on anger lots. And maybe anger is your thing. So God brings up anger as the emotion he wants to speak to you on. So then we listen for where it came from and you get a memory of, you know, your mom and your dad were always yelling, like they would always get angry. And when they were angry at you, you always felt like that meant they hated you, right? So forever since then, anytime you encounter someone who's angry, you always translate that into, oh, they hate me, right? You can't see it for what it is. So now Jesus brings you back there and he says, you know, they didn't actually hate you. They were just emotionally immature. I was with you. They didn't know how to deal with it. But then he says, you know, anger doesn't mean that people hate you. Anger just means that you've experienced injustice. And now you're set free. Now you can actually begin the walk of maturing in anger. But just because you have that truth doesn't mean that now you know how to handle your anger, does it? It just means that now you won't just necessarily shut down emotionally when you handle, you know, when you, when you experience anger. Okay, you still need to learn how to walk it through. How do I handle being overwhelmed? That we're going to talk about a little bit more next week. But for now, we're going to do the first thing, and that's bringing our issues to Jesus, okay? So Nathan's going to come up and he's going to play keys while we do this, and it's going to be good. And um, when we go through the inner healing practicum, practicum, I just want to tell you a few things. So if you feel stuck at any point, uh, first one is, you know, relax, wait on the Lord, allow him to speak in his timing, okay? The first two times I heard God speak to me, and I know we talk about listening prayer, don't worry about listening prayer. Think of it like thoughts. I'm going to ask Jesus to speak to you, and whenever thoughts come to your head, just write those thoughts down. The first time I heard God speak, the first two times I heard God speak were well before we were teaching this here at the church and before I had ever even learned it before. Okay, I'd never been taught about listening prayer. When God wanted to speak to me and he wanted me to know his voice, he's God, he's sovereign, he can speak to you and you can hear his voice. Okay, we always think it's about us. It's not about us, it's about him. So I'm going to ask him to speak and then we just follow and just, you know, write down whatever thoughts come. So if you get stuck, relax, wait on the Lord, allow him to speak in his timing. Second one is you can bring this, you know, you might start on something like anger or fear or hopelessness and you're like, we just barely started and I didn't have enough time. Bring it into your devotional time tomorrow morning. Maybe even tonight before you go to bed, bring it to him and just continue through this. You know, get your spouse involved, get a friend involved. And lastly, if it's something that's really big, if you've suffered through some serious abuse and that sort of things, you can call the church, call Connie, and then set up an appointment for personal ministry. We can help you through that here, okay? But for now, we're going to start. So bow your heads. I'm going to start by praying for you guys, and then I'll lead you through the backside here. By the way, you can see the instructions in the front. You can just, uh, you can go through this anytime you want, even once you're done here, right? And the six difficult emotions are listed there, so you'll see them on there. And now I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask him to reveal an emotion, and then I'll just lead you in prayer from there. You just follow the cues and write down what he shows you. Jesus, I just thank you that you are good. And uh, right now, I just, I'm reminded again, just like, of that picture of, of you, Jesus, with Mary and Martha. And I think so often we just, we get overwhelmed and we feel so guilty. Like, we feel like, oh, I shouldn't be afraid. I shouldn't feel that fear. And we feel guilty because we got angry. Guilty because we're sad. Guilty because we're weak and broken. And Jesus, I just love your tender response to your friends. You didn't rebuke them for their sadness. You didn't brush it off or minimize it and then just go and fix the problem. You got on their level and you wept with your friends. Jesus, that's the same. We come to you today with all of our emotional overwhelm and our baggage and our junk. And we're asking that you would do the same thing with us this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would meet us on our level, that you would teach us how we can become free, that how we can become teleos, emotionally mature. So to begin, I ask Jesus that you would show each person here one of those six emotions 
that they're stuck in that you would like to speak on? Could be something that you avoid or something that when you feel it, you get overwhelmed. Jesus, I ask that you would now show each person here where was the first time they felt overwhelmed because of that emotion? I ask that you would bring them to that spot. Maybe it's a memory. have to overanalyze. Just write down whatever comes. Just point form. Just short. Just enough so you can jogs your memory and brings you to that place. Jesus, I now ask that in that moment where we were feeling that overwhelm and that emotion, I just ask that you would reveal to each person here what is the lie they've been believing about that emotion and about themselves. Jesus, I just ask that you would reveal to each person here and to myself, where were you in this event? Where were you in the memory? We know that you're always there. I just ask that you would reveal your presence to us. Lord Jesus, that you would speak your truth into our hearts. We know your truth has the power to transform and to redeem and to set us free. I ask that you would speak truth in our hearts, that we would know your truth about how you want us to feel about that emotion and about how you see us.
And Jesus, I just thank you for your truth. Thank you that you're moving each of us forward, helping us take those next steps towards you. Now I just ask that you would give each person here just a practical step, one thing that they can do or focus on the next time they begin feeling overwhelmed and the emotion you're trying to speak them on. Remember, it might be something that you've dealt with for a very long time that you've had a lot of trouble with. You might need to go through this process multiple times with even the same emotion to get out of that kind of stuck feeling. There might be multiple memories where you had different lies planted and you can keep bringing it to Jesus. Every time we feel stuck, the first step is we bring it to Jesus. When we feel hopeless and overwhelmed, like it's too much for us, then we, then we just ask for help. We respond the way he created us to respond and we just ask for help. We say, Jesus, I need your help. We ask a spouse, a friend, a cell leader. We call in the church and ask for help. We can help you through this. So bow your heads, though. I just want to pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for each person that you brought here today. I thank you for your desire for us to become teleos, to become mature, to become whole and perfect, to become, you know, to get to that place where we're lacking in nothing. I thank you that you're patient with us as we're on this journey. That you don't push us or pull us, you walk with us. Just like you walked with Mary and Martha, you walk with us, you feel with us, you love us. Jesus, I pray that each person here would leave today with a sense of your love for them and with the sense of the joy that you have for the relationship you have with them. You actually feel joy in our relationships. So Jesus, I pray that each person would leave here with your truth that you spoke to them today, that you would seal it on their heart and that it would continue to minister to them throughout the week. In Jesus' name, amen.